In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me. In my vision, I saw myself in the citadel of the Uli Canal. I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns standing beside the canal. And the horns were long. One of the horns was longer than the other, but grew up later. I watched the ram as it charged towards the, the west and the north and the south. No animal could stand against it, and none could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and became great. As I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn between its eyes came from the west, crossing the whole earth without touching the ground. It came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and charged at it in great rage. I saw it attack the ram furiously, striking the ram and shattering its two horns. The ram was powerless to stand against it. The goat knocked it to the ground and trampled on it, and none could rescue the ram from its power. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off, and, it, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came another horn, which started small but grew in power to the south and to the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew until it reached the hosts of heaven and it threw some of the starry hosts down to the earth and trampled on them. It set itself up to be as great as the commander of the army of the Lord. He took away the daily sacrifices from the Lord and his sanctuary was thrown down. Because of rebellion, the Lord's people and the daily sacrifice were given over to it. It, pro it prospered in everything it did and truth was thrown to the ground. Then I heard a holy one speaking and, an and another holy one said to him, how long will it take for the vision to be fulfilled? The vision concerning the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that causes desolation, the surrender of the sanctuary, and the trampling underfoot of the Lord's people. He said to me, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconstructed, reconsecrated. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision and trying to understand it, there before me stood one who looked like a man, and I heard the man's, a man's voice from the Uli calling, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of the vision. As he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified and fell prostrate. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision concerns the end of time the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I was in a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me and raised me to my feet. He said, I am going to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath, because the vision concerns the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram 
that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece and the, lo and the large horn between its eyes is the first king. The four horns that replaced the one that was broken off represents four kingdoms that will emerge from his nation but will not have the same power. In the latter part of their reign, when rebels have become completely wicked, a fierce-looking king, a master of intrigue, will arise. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. He will cause astounding devastation and will succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy those who are mighty, the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper and he will consider himself superior. When they feel secure, he will destroy many and take his stand against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that have been given to you is true, but seal up the vision, for it concerns the distant future. I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Daniel chapter 12. At that time, Michael, the great prince who protects your people, will arise. There will be a time of distress, such as not happened from the beginning of nations until then. But at that time, your people, everyone whose name is found written in the book, will be delivered. Multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. Many will go here and there to increase knowledge. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank. One of them said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the river, lifted his right hand and his left hand towards heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, It will be for a time, times, and half a time. Then the power of the holy people, when the power of the holy people have been finally broken, all these things will be completed. I heard, but did not understand. So I asked, My Lord, what will, be, what will the outcome of this be? He replied, Go your way, Daniel, because the words are rolled up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will be purified, made spotless and refined, but the wicked will continue to be wicked. None of the wicked will understand but those who are wise will understand. From the time that the daily sacrifice is abolished 
and the abomination that causes desolation is set up, there will be 1,290 days. Blessed is the one who waits for and reaches the end of the 1,335 days. As for you, go your way till the end. You will rest, and then at the end of the days, you will receive, you'll rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Now from 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels look into these things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Even angels long to understand what the prophet spoke about, uh, is what Peter's saying there in that text. The prophet spoke of the grace that was to come to you. They searched intently with the greatest care and they tried to find the times and circumstances uh, that led to the spirit of the king or the Messiah. Uh, what a perfect reading, that second one, uh, to understand Daniel's 8 through 12. It should be said that most speakers ignore Daniel 8, 9, 10, 11 and 12. In fact, I'm guilty of it. I've done up to chapter 6, Daniel of the Lion's Den, maybe even touched on 7 and then just dropped the series. And I don't want to do that because this is part of the Word of God. It's meaty and powerful and I hope you'll see in a few moments' time that it makes a lot of sense as we go about our Mondays in Babylon. Shall we pray? Father, our hope is not in the kingdoms of this world, uh, nor in the kings or princes or governors of this world. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection, and the hope of sharing in his glory. Father, these words aren't easy to understand, but we pray that you'll speak to us of such a hope, such a profound hope this morning. We pray this in the power of your Spirit. 
Amen. So each Sunday, we proclaim from this pulpit what we call a gospel, which of course means good news. The gospel is, is our message. It's our only sword in the battle of life. It's the sword of the Spirit, Paul will call it, and it slices into hearts, a little bit like the surgeon's knife, for the purposes of healing rather than hurting. The gospel is a revelation from God. It's good, good news, and it's God's news. We just whisper what we have heard. We declare what has been made known. And it's a specific kind of news. It's not moralistic news. It's not a message about how you can morally improve. This is not about Christian values. It's not nationalistic news. It's not a message about how our society is the best society. This is not about Christian dominance. The gospel is not a therapeutic message, a message about how you can feel better. The gospel is not there to give you a good feeling. And it's not individualistic news, a message about me and how I've been forgiven and now I'm going to heaven. The gospel has global implications. It is a message about Jesus, that He is the world's one, true, only Messiah. That He lived, died, and rose again as the King, the King who prefers to give life rather than to take it, to serve rather than to be served, and to give His life as a ransom for many. This King does not tax, He gives. And it's a gospel that transforms lives, our lives aren't just a sort of, um, they don't just need a lick of paint uh, on an otherwise good life. Uh, our lives don't just need a little recalibration for someone heading in the right direction. No. Uh, the Apostle Paul was stopped in his tracks and turned around by the risen Jesus, and he said in Galatians, he said, I've been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. You know, my former life is dead. I now live uh, by uh, Christ who lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus, therefore, is a power higher than the ones we tend to fear, a power deeper than the ones we tend to admire. And this gospel is not a message that sugarcoats life now, Life is hard now. Life is complex now. Embedded into the message is a message about sin, mine and nations, individuals and systemic sin, all very evident as you go to work each day. And in the gospel, God gives us a glimpse of the future that encourages us to trust Him deeply today. Jesus is God's kingdom come. Jesus is God's will done on earth as it is in heaven, so I'll follow Him I worship Him rather than fear or admire the twisted empires of our world. God gave us the book of Daniel to work out how to do Mondays in Babylon. I want to show you that briefly from Daniel 8 through 12, and this will be brief and unsatisfactory. To truly get into Daniel 8 through 12, you'll need to do your own work, get a commentary, it will take you, I reckon, about four hours to read the chapters and read the relevant section in the commentary, like this one from Trempa Longman. You can borrow this from me exactly this time next week. 
Next week, we plumb Daniel chapter 9 because we've got several baptisms across uh, several services, and I want to speak to guests about the simple message of forgiveness. So what to make of these visions? Well, like last week, there's an underbelly to the world, twisted power, empirical warfare, but in God's plans, God's timing, things will get worse for Daniel and the Israelites before they get better, before a resurrection to come. And that's why the book ends in chapter 12, verse 13, as for you, go your way till the end, you will rest, you'll die, and then at the end of the days, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Daniel uh, 8 through 12 is a genre, it's called apocalyptic or apocalypsis, which means to reveal. Uh, This section is more detailed about the future than other apocalyptic literature. It's it's got pinpoint accuracy uh, about the 2nd century BC. This is all set in the 6th century BC. Um, which makes many question the dating of it. Apocalyptic language uh, means uh, to reveal things. It's not like Hollywood says, tidal waves and, you know, um, zombies. That's not apocalyptic language. It's a style meant to reveal God's heart, His plans. And like I said last week, it's high in imagery, it's very emotive, it's hard to pin down, although Daniel 8 through 12 was a little easier for the scholars to do so. It's meant to reach out from the page and grab you, and it's meant to mean something only for those who are thirsty. If you're just curious, it won't reveal its secrets. If you're bored, you don't get what it has for you. As I said last week, topical, if not controversial, the most uh, the simplest connection to apocalyptic language in Australian society is Michael Lunig cartoons. It has empirical intrigue through 8 through 12 with this ram and the goat in chapter 8 and later we'll, I'll tell you about the king of the south and the king of the north in chapter 11. But embedded into it is this hope of the resurrection in chapter 12 that multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, they'll go to the grave, They will awake, some to everlasting life and others to shame and everlasting contempt. James K.A. Smith said this, listen, we live leaning forward, bent on arriving at the place we long for. Three things to say about this gospel, and this is outlined on page eight of your orders of service. Firstly, in the middle of all the darkness comes light, an end, in verse 8, but not without first sleepless nights for Daniel. Secondly, in the middle of all the wrath against sin comes propitiation, I'll explain that, but not without pleading for forgiveness from God. And thirdly, from chapters 10 through 12, in the middle of all the death and destruction comes resurrection and hope, not without confusion for Daniel. So firstly, in the middle of all the darkness comes light, chapter 8. Remember, I'm just giving you a taste here. In Daniel chapter 8, verse 1, in the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, about 584 BC, I, Daniel, had a vision after the one that had already appeared to me, that's Daniel 7, and this dream dovetails nicely. In the vision, he's placed 
in ancient Persia, modern-day Iran, beside the Ulai Canal, and in the vision he sees a ram with two horns, one longer than the other. The ram sort of takes over the whole world. Verse 4, no animal could stand against it. None could rescue from its power. It did as it pleased and it became great. It begs the question, is there a power higher? Well, it turns out there is. Nations rise and nations fall and God's in control despite appearances. Daniel then sees a goat, greatest of all time. The goat decimates the ram in the vision in verse 8. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. Very young, the large horn dies. Who could he be talking about? This kingdom is broken into four, uh, but one rises that breathes threats against Israel, the beautiful land. He'll stop sacrifices, and he'll set up the abomination which desolates. Jesus uses those words. Uh, And it prospered in everything it did, and truth was thrown to the ground. It seems to me that this is not the first post-truth era. Now you say, what's the meaning? Well, Daniel gets told the meaning of the vision in verse 17. I, uh, as he came near the place where I was standing, I was terrified, and I fell prostrate. Uh, Son of man, he said to me, understand the vision concerns the time of the end, the next couple of hundred years in Daniel's uh, world. And the meaning is this, verse 20, the two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The ram is the Medo-Persian Empire. Two horns. Uh, Persians became greater than the, the, uh, the Medes. Verse 21, you get told what the goat is. The shaggy goat is the king of Greece, not named. The large horn between its eyes was its first king. Now, almost, almost certainly Daniel is being told about Alexander the Great fascinating, who conquered the known world, as you all know, and barely touched the ground as he did so. But the horn was cut off. He died at the age of 32 in 323 BC. But one will come after who will persecute Jews, and most likely he's talking about Antiochus IV Epiphanes in the second century BC. The second letter book of Maccabees says this about Antiochus. We've not heard of him, but he's the Hitler of his day. Listen to this. Listen to this, raging like a wild animal. Antiochus set out from Egypt and took Jerusalem by storm. He ordered his soldiers to cut down without mercy those whom he met and to slay those who took refuge in their houses. There was a massacre of young and old, a killing of women and children. So much darkness. And yet in all this darkness comes light and into the evil. Of time comes justice. Verse 25 Yet Antiochus will be destroyed, but not by human power. Now, do you find all this exhausting? You're in good company. Verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. He said, it's only 11 o'clock in the morning. I'm worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. Then I got up and went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision it was beyond understanding, yearning, longing to understand, you know, what angels long to see and understand. Now, it's important that Daniel went about the king's business. He went back to work. News of darkness and of the end to come, the gospel, didn't stop him from working 
in Babylon on Monday. With a non-anxious presence, didn't freak him out, didn't make him like um, Cassandra, an ancient Greek myth about a woman who was told the future and as a curse was told she would never be able to persuade anybody of a disaster to arrive and she went mad. Daniel's no Cassandra, didn't freak him out. He carried the news in his heart of the end to injustice and of evil. And I presume he prayed what Jesus said, which is, Lord, deliver us from evil. So that's chapter 8. In chapter 9, uh, which we'll look at next week, in the middle of all the wrath comes propitiation. That's an old word. But it's important to say this. Daniel knows that the problem of the world isn't just other people. Not just that other people are the problem. Did you watch Q&A on Monday before it was pulled by the ABC? Where the problem is power structures and evil empires. Daniel's not here to crush the dominant paradigm. He's not there to do that without first acknowledging his own sins, which is why we do it almost every Sunday here, and the sins of his people. At the beginning of chapter 9, he consults the word of the Lord, the Bible, Jeremiah's letter to the exile, and he, find, he discovers there that they're going to be in Babylon for 70 years because of their own sins. Uh, the exile is punishment for sins, but then he gets told it's going to be worse for another 400 or 500 years before an anointed one comes. Daniel 9 is a stunning example of someone pleading for forgiveness. Um, Daniel 9 verse 3, it's not printed there, but in prayer and petition, in fasting, in sackcloth and ashes, I prayed to the Lord my God and I confessed, Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We've sinned. We've done wrong. We've been wicked. Such, such language. We've rebelled. We've, we have turned away from your commands and laws and we've not listened to your servants, the prophets. Daniel 9, verse 7, you're righteous, O God. You've got every right to pour out your holy wrath on us. I mean, hell is what we deserve, is effectively what he says. But you love us anyway, and you brought us up out of Egypt. And so, Daniel 9, verse 16, Lord, in keeping with all your righteous acts, turn, here it is, here it is, turn away your wrath. Turn away your anger from Jerusalem, your holy city. Your city. Turn your anger away. To propitiate is a verb, and propitiation describes an activity. It's an old word. It's in the King James Version of the Bible and in the Book of Common Prayer to describe the concept of, of turning away one's wrath. You have righteous anger at something. Instead of directing it this way, you direct it that way. If I could put it this way. To put your anger elsewhere and therefore to satisfy your justice, to absorb your anger elsewhere. Jesus Christ is the propitiation for our sins, said the Apostle John. Daniel knew it. In the middle of all the wrath comes propitiation. But not without Daniel saying, God, forgive me. Hear my plea. Turn away your wrath. Daniel didn't know that Jesus Christ's death on the cross would be the propitiation for our sins. But he does get told. Gabriel turns up, the angel, and he says, there's trouble ahead. Uh, it'll be 500 years before the Christ comes. Daniel 9, verse 25. Know and understand this. From the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem from Cyrus the Persian 
until the anointed one comes, the Christ, the Messiah, the, the ruler comes, there'll be seven sevens and 62 sevens, about 490 years. And the city will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. Didn't Jesus live in times of trouble? Didn't Jesus say, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days? Referring to his body. And here in Daniel 9, you get this prophecy of an anointed one who will be put to death. But sacrifices will end. And it's both positive and negative here in these chapters. After 62 sevens, the anointed one will be put to death, 9 verse 26, and will have nothing. The Christ will be stripped of everything and left naked and bare. It will look like the Christ has died, but this will not be easy in the middle of all the pain and the power and the blood. He will put an end to sin. Now, get your mind around that. He'll atone for wickedness, thank God, and bring everlasting righteousness to those who believe. That's a complex text, but Jesus applied this to himself in the Gospels. He is the anointed one who died and rose again to bring righteousness to many, me included. Attributed to Napoleon Bonaparte are these words, I know men. And I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Daylight between Jesus and number two. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius upon force. Jesus Christ founded his empire on love, a gospel, that sword. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. I put myself among them. We'll explore that next week. And lastly and finally, in the middle of all the death comes a resurrection. But not without confusion uh, in Daniel uh, I think it's chapter 10, I haven't written it down here, somebody could tell me later, uh, in verse 2, Daniel mourned for three weeks, he ate no choice food, no meat or wine touched his lips, and I used no lotions at all until the three weeks were over. Were over. He didn't have a shower, he had a lot of confusion about what was taking place here. But in chapter 10, a, a man whose voice was like a multitude speaks, uh, Daniel chapter 10, verse 4, on the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river Tigris, I looked and there before me was a man dressed in linen with a belt of fine gold round his waist and his voice was like the sound of a multitude. In Revelation chapter 1, it's like the sound of rushing waters speaking about Jesus Christ. And that man, who knows who it is? It's, a, it's like a Christ. He gives to Daniel a gospel that he is here to fight evil and win, a spiritual battle. And so he says in, in chapter 10, verse 12, Do not be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I've come in response to them. This man gets sent with news. And in chapter 11, you have this fight, this king of the north, which is not named, but no doubt the scholars say it's the Ptolemies down in Egypt. So the king of the south and the king of the north, which is the Seleucids, most likely in ancient Greece. That is battles and fights, and they turn up here and there, and they have intermarriages with Israel, of course, the football in the middle of all this national intrigue. In fact, uh, the detail is so uh, 
precise that uh, some scholars uh, assume that this text set in the 6th century BC must have been written in the 2nd century AD because you can place the battles and the, the, the marriages and the argument will be written in the 2nd century it has explanatory power for what is happening for the Jews who are being persecuted through the lens of ancient Daniel. Now one does not have to believe that. That's what some scholars say, and I want to tell you that in case you do your work and you find out that uh, many scholars believe that Daniel was written in the second century to explain what was happening then. I don't believe you have to believe that because the alternative, of course, is that Daniel, who's the one named, is being told what the next 400 years will look like and the news is not good. But there's an answer, hope. And it comes through a resurrection or the promise of a resurrection after death. Michael comes in chapter 12, God will fight and deliver his people, chapter 12, verse 1, and then multitudes who sleep in the dust of the earth, who are buried in a grave, will awake, some to everlasting life, others to shame and everlasting contempt, and those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens, and those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, roll up and seal the words of the scroll until the time of the end. It doesn't get opened until Jesus opens it in the book of Revelation. And many will go here and there to increase knowledge. You'll go and study and you'll go and work and you'll go and prove yourself. But there's one thing you truly need to know to do Mondays in horrible Babylon. And that is to have hope in Christ's resurrection from the dead. Daniel 12 verse 2 is one of the clearest references to physical resurrection in the Old Testament, some will rise to live, others will rise to experience hell. That's what Daniel's told. Be sure to be part of the former, and the gospel, the good news, is your door. You just have to do what Paul did, which is to repent and believe. And so our hope, then, is in resurrection. It's not in life now. J.R.R. Tolkien, of Lord of the Rings fame, uh, framed up the resurrection as an opposite of a catastrophe. In fact, he coined a new word, but it never took off, the new word. He said this, the resurrection is the you-catastrophe. The the good news, (laughs) you're expecting something bad, but you've got good news. At the end of the story of the incarnation, the story begins and ends enjoy. But this news of the resurrection transforms life now. It's not just pie in the sky when you die. Uh, German theologian Jürgen Moltmann said this, the resurrection hope makes people ready to live their lives in love wholly and to say a full and entire yes to a life that indeed leads to death. But But you don't have despair. The resurrection does not withdraw the human soul from bodily, sensory life, rather the resurrection ensouls this life with unending joy. That's why Peter wrote in that second reading there, he wrote, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. No despot or dictator or bully can take this away from you 
because this inheritance is kept currently in heaven for you, waiting to be revealed when Jesus Christ is revealed. And that's why Peter can go on and say, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now, like Daniel, you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. But that grief is there to refine you, to chisel out in you genuine faith as you go about perhaps some sleepless nights in Babylon. Because Daniel's disturbed. Chapter 12, verse 8, I heard, I did not understand. And so I asked my Lord, what will the outcome of all this be? How will this all end? Well, there'll be a death, verse 11, but soon after there will be an end, verse 12. So hold the line, dear Daniel, and hold the line, you heirs of his faith. As for you, go your way, live your lives till the end. You will rest, you will die, unless the Lord tarries and turns uh, before you do, but you will rest. So sobering, isn't it? You will rest. And then at the end of the days, you will receive, you will rise to receive your allotted inheritance. Resurrection is our hope. When I was doing youth ministry at uh, Christchurch St. Ives, there was a men's event that I'm pretty sure Doug ran. Anyway, I was the MC of it. And um, we interviewed four men one in his 20s, to talk about life in his 20s, one in his 40s, one in his 60s, and one very fine gentleman in his late 80s. As it turns out, he was not long for the world. He'd been a Christian, I think, his whole life, and very generous and very dedicated to church life. But I asked him, in front of these men, and maybe he was a deer in headlights, froze, I'm not sure, but I asked him what he was looking forward to about the next 100 years giving him a chance, really, to talk about his hope in the resurrection of the dead. And he paused and he said, I'm hoping that my kids and grandkids will be able to say that I've lived a good life. My heart sank. And I thought to myself, why can't we do it? Why can't we say it? Is it too good to be true? Are we embarrassed about it? We only believe in catastrophes and not you catastrophes. Hoping the resurrection of Jesus Christ is beautiful, it is profound, it is weird, and it is life changing. It doesn't stop you from acting now for this broken world in which we live. Rather, it ensouls this life with unending joy, even as we face complex situations. But it means that you can go about being disturbed in this planet. You can go about the king's business on Monday morning. People will do terrible things to you. You could even die for your faith. Maybe not in Australia, maybe. But even if you do, they can't touch you. They can't touch you. Not your soul, not your heart. Though you have not seen Christ, said Peter, you love him. And even though you do not see him now... You believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the gospel we hold. This is the gospel we live by. This is the gospel we obey. And this is the gospel we preach. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for this grand vision of 
life and we recognize that we also live in a time when their kingdoms rise and fall uh, and we can see that even in our world today in the despots live and rule and people go about their business but we have our hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ not in politics or politicians uh, at 8 30 we sang a hymn and uh, it was perfectly chosen and suddenly apt and it goes like this when comes the promised time the end of strife and war, when lust, oppression, crime and greed shall be no more. When comes that promised time, it comes at Christ's appearing. We live life now with a body and soul with unending joy, and yet it's complex as we go about Mondays in Babylon. We pray that you'll give us hope in the resurrection that transforms our lives now. We pray this in Christ's name.